John Henry Cole is the captain. Boss man, do you ever pray? Well, if I miss this deal, let this hammer get away. Mara be your barren day. Lord, Lord. Mara be your barren day. This is on mass, bringing together stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I'm your host, Liz Medina. You are listening to Episode 6, titled Poor Devil, featuring the story of Jack Gills, a former head Derrickman. In the previous episode, we heard the story of Mali Chenda, who followed her husband from Italy to the United States after he found work in Barry's once-booming granite industry. Her husband was a stone carver, and she experienced the all-too-common tragedy of losing her husband to the industry. After losing her husband, she supported herself and her children by serving dinners in her home. In this episode, we will wrap up our time in the Great Depression with Jack's story. Jack worked as a head derrickman and did other odd jobs in the quarries. From his perch above the quarry in the derrick operating room, he would wait. He would watch men set dynamite to the stone, loud cracks like thunder in the center of a storm, and clouds of dust would follow. Finally, when all was clear, men down below would chain up five-ton blocks and guide him in lifting them out of the quarry. He would watch the workers do this every day, no matter the weather or season, and hope for the best. Then, one day, he was no longer there. No one was, because when Jack told his story for the Federal Writers Project, he was unemployed, like millions of others during the Depression. In Barry's granite industry alone, the value of industrial products decreased from $142 million in 1928 to just $56 million in 1933, over a 50% decline. Everywhere, businesses were closing down. The number of industrial workers fell from 27,421 to 15,083, and the number of industrial plants fell from 927 to 530, according to the records of the Vermont Historical Society. While we have been exploring the effects of the Great Depression, we really haven't discussed the causes. Why were quarries, businesses, heck, whole towns suddenly devastated and abandoned? Why did the Depression happen? While stories like Jack's don't directly answer this question, there are hints and traces, as you will soon hear. But let's take a moment to directly answer these questions. The causes of the Great Depression followed a general pattern that can be applied to most economic crises in recent history. The economic system we have been living under for the last 500 years or so is called capitalism. And under capitalism, firms need to continually find ways to increase their profits, otherwise they would be taken out by competing firms. In their pursuit of greater profits, businesses try to save money. And one way to save money is to increase productivity, meaning getting more done with less workers. Introducing new technology or making their employees work harder and longer or a combination of these, may increase their productivity. If businesses manage to produce more, then they will need to sell more. 
At the same time, if they manage to cut wages or the size of their workforce, then there will be less buyers. 1929 was reported to be the most productive year for the granite industry in Barrie. Before the stock market crashed in 1929, the granite industry had been rapidly introducing new technology, including a tool called a bumper. Introduced to Barry's granite industry in 1909, the bumper not only increased productivity, but the amount of dust, and therefore the number of silicosis cases. This was all tolerated for a little while because unions got their share in the growing wealth created by the increase in productivity. But in the fall of 1920, granite companies in Barry started facing growing competition from the South. The owners began organizing themselves to fight the so-called unbearable demands of labor. Their goal was to bust unions in order to suppress wages. All across the nation, employers were of the same mind. In 1921, owners from all kinds of industries held a convention in Chicago to devise a plan to rid themselves of unions. They decided to use fear and force to achieve their goal. They called their campaign the American Plan. Patriotism and fears of foreign influence were on the rise, and the owners took advantage of this in marketing their plan. The Russian Revolution shook the world in 1917, and in 1919, there was a massive general strike in Seattle. To carry out the plan, company thugs were hired in some cities to break up peaceful demonstrations and strikes by force. It helped to have a name that pretended these abhorrent acts were expressions of patriotism. The American plan was one of the first coordinated attempts to destroy unions and force workplaces to adopt an open shop policy. Open shop is a confusing term. Open sounds good, but in truth, it is a euphemism for freeloading. An open shop policy means workers in a unionized workplace don't have to join the union, even if they benefit from the union's contract. Unions spent a lot of time and money negotiating and upholding fair contracts for their workers. Unfortunately for workers, the American plan was very effective. By 1923, union membership was already down by 25%. Business owners got what they wanted. But it was not long before they ran into a classic contradiction. They still had to find a way to sell more and more of their products but now there was less and less demand due to lower wages and job loss. In economic speak, they ran into a crisis of overproduction. So what did the businesses do? Well, they borrowed more money to stay solvent, restructured production to increase productivity even further, hoarded their money, or tried to sustain profits through speculating on the stock market. Workers and consumers also borrowed money or tried their luck speculating on the market to try to make up for falling wages. Sometimes they borrowed money just to play the stock market. And then came the crash of 29. After years of borrowing and speculation, the stock market became widely dissociated from what was actually produced and consumed. The market was valued way beyond what could possibly be absorbed by demand. Panic and collapse ensued. For Jack and his fellow workers, that meant ruthless wage cuts layoffs, and worse still, the complete closure of sheds and quarries. The quarries he surveyed 
which were once thunderous with activity, became silent. Perhaps it was better that way, for they often became the graves of many good men. But if that was how those same men got their daily bread, then what were they to do now? Jack's oral history was recorded by Roldus Richmond as part of the Federal Writers Project. It was likely recorded between 1936 and 1939, during the Great Depression. Richard Gayote will be performing Jack's story. I worked in this quarry 21 years. I was a head derrick man. See that shack on the other side? I operated from there a while. I worked all through here. It's one of the biggest quarries on the hill. There still is a lot of good stone left in there. All kinds of good stone. Back there by the first water hole, that's where they got what they called that sunny side blue. The only blue granite on the hill. It was beautiful blue and the hardest grain of them all. Wouldn't take a polish, didn't need a polish. Carvers liked to work on that blue stone. They said they could put an edge on it like a razor. Softer stone sometimes crumbles when they try and get a fine edge. With carvers, they could get a razor fine edges on that blue. See that little hole, the side of the big quarry? Sunk there in them woods? Well, the best dark granite in the world came out of that hole. There's a lot of it left, too. The dark and the blue. They'd still be working it if Langley hadn't sold off all the machinery and equipment. Must be eight, ten years since they worked on it. Yeah, it's too bad, too bad. I haven't worked since December myself. Six months out of work. Gotta do something, by God, before long. Way up by that last water hole, see the hand derrick? I started opening a quarry there three or four months ago. It's too much like work though, all by hand. If you had a compressor, it'd be different. It's goddamn slow by hand. Quarrying slowly enough with machinery. See that red shack over across? I was running the derrick one day when my signal man fell off from there. It's 100 feet deep, maybe 200. Jesus Christ. When he landed, you could hear it on top. I heard it a long time after, too. Wasn't much left of that boy. He was always kind of careless. When we had visitors, he'd take chances just to show off. Just a kid, that's why. Took one too many, that poor devil. Glad I wasn't on the bottom near where he landed. I used to handle the dynamite, too. The worst one I ever saw was when they were blasting out under a ledge. The fuse was lit all right, but it took a long time to go off. They thought it had gone dead or something. I told them not to go back under there, but this fella did, this, this French fella. It just went off. He was crawling under. Jesus, help me. I never want to see anything like that again. Blew him out like a cannonball. Blew the hair right off his head, the clothes off his body. Blew his eyes out, his ears off. There were a piece of wood and stone blown right into his head and body. Oh, I don't understand it, but that man lived for two hours more. He lived screaming and cursing, blown skinless right to hell, but still alive. He kept screaming, I'll get you, you dirty bastards, I'll get you all, you sons of bitches. Then it would be just one long, awful screech, and your hair would prickle up and your stomach would turn and your heart would just sink. I don't know why such a thing should happen to any man by Jesus, I don't. But it happened to that poor devil. I saw it, and I heard it. I get sick now thinking of it. 
This quarry was ruined after Langley took it over. Started selling off a piece of land here, a piece there. He got a junk man and sold all the machinery to him, stripped off all the equipment on the place. Had a new steam shovel that came for the World's Fair in Chicago. They took that, came in with blow torches, cut everything apart, carried it off. Sold all the thousands of dollars worth of machinery for $800. I don't know why he did it unless he got funny in the head as he got older. By Jesus, it was a crime. If the machinery had been left, some other company would have been here long before this. They'd be working it today. Now it lays dead and idle, all that good granite. I've been here in the quarries 30 years, but I wish I'd never seen them. Quarry is no good now. If you get laid off one job, you can't get another. Just same crew, hardly ever taking on a new man. I never stayed in one place very long until I came here. Wouldn't have stayed, but it was here I met my wife. She's a Swedish woman. She made me settle down. Probably I needed somebody like her. Somebody solid and steady to tie to. I used to drink too much. I was pretty wild and crazy. Worked my way across the continent twice from coast to coast. I saw plenty, but I'd be going yet if I hadn't met Ollie. I still get restless once in a while. 30 years. I've been here since 1909. Haven't got much to show for it except for a little farm on the hill. I own that, but we're not living on it now. I can make a little money by renting it to a fellow and living in a flat in the village. Ollie and I don't need too much room. But it's damn nice up on the farm. Way up on the hilltop with maples growing in the yard. Mountains all around in the distance. We have spring water up there too. It's a good place to live all right, but there's not much money in farming for the work you put into it. And I'm not the worker I was. I was born up in New Brunswick. I was 16 when I left home and started across the continent. I worked in the copper mines, moving west from one to another. I rode second class on the trains. They had no cushions on the seats, just wooden benches, like in a park. I gathered up all the paper I could find for a cushion. At night, you'd crawl up on the baggage rack, put your coat under your head and sleep, or try to sleep. All night the gravel from the prairies out there was just like hail on the roof. And they'd stop at some town, 15 minutes for lunch. By Jesus, you'd no more have your food on the counter, and the bell would start ringing, they'd yell, all aboard! Some of them people were fools enough to leave their food there and run for the train, but not me. I took mine with me, plates and all. No goddamn railroad's gonna make me starve. Now that reminds me of a story. These two tramps walked along the road and they couldn't get a thing to eat nowhere. They were damn near dead of starvation. Every house they stopped at, they'd sick the dogs on them. Well, they came to some horse manure in the road. One of them bent down and picked up a curdle of it. By God, I got an idea, he says. At the next place, he told his friend to wait. He went up and rapped on the door and a lady came. Lady, he said, I haven't eaten for two weeks and I'm starving to death. Will you give me some salt to put on this? And she says, oh, throw that dirty thing away. Come in and wash your hands, and I'll give you a real feed. Oh, and she did. So the fellow went back, and he told his friend it worked fine. So the next farmhouse they came to, his friend tried it. 
big Scotch woman came to the door. He says, lady, I'm dying for lack of food. Would you give me some salt to put on this? Oh, throw that dirty thing away, the Scotch woman says. Go on out to the barn and get a fresh piece, and I'll go get the salt. I'm part of Scotch myself. When I was a kid, we used to play hooky from school and go down to the docks, listen to the sailors. Some of the stories I heard I can still remember. Some days we'd go aboard, climb up in the topsails, make a hammock in the canvas and lay there all day. We had to watch out for was they didn't start unreefing the sail. I could sit for hours and listen to those sailors talk. Maybe that's where I got my roving feet. Now, if you want a real experience, go to one of them harvesting excursions. I went on one, and by God, I never saw such times. Three, four thousand men on the train. They'd stop ten miles outside of town, unhook the engine and the caboose, and then go get water. They didn't dare bring us into town. All those men, they'd turn a town bottom side up in no time, you know. They did stop in a little place near Calgary. There was a saloon right across from the station. You should have seen those fellows pile off the train into that saloon. They filled it solid full. The ones outside were yelling to get in. They came out of there with quart bottles piled in their arms like cord wood. There's an old woman upstairs over top of the saloon. She started throwing dishes and pots at them. She'd watch for a head to come out and she'd let go a dish. She must have thrown everything she had in the place. There was a fire hose there. And a fellow came down the street all dressed up with Nose glasses, a half derby, long coat, spats, and all that. They turned the hose on to him, knocked him keeling end over end. Train stopped by a cattle yard full of sheep. They started loading sheep onto that train. When the train started, they began heaving sheep out one after another. One place we stopped by a haymow. They filled the car up with straw, lay around in it just like hogs. We went to work in a little place north of Winnipeg. Weather was bad and there was no harvesting. Fourteen of us were in a bunch and a farmer came in and hired us. He wanted us to stay in town, live at the hotel, but we wouldn't. He had to take us out to the farm. We lived in what they called a caboose, a car on wheels, with bunks inside, so it could be moved to follow the harvesting. It rained for two weeks. That farmer got goddamn sick of feeding us for doing nothing. All day we lay around the bunkhouse. At night we go into town, get drunk, come back and keep that farmer awake all night. We yeah, had plenty of music with harmonicas, guitars, banjos. That farmer was goddamn good and sick of us. But we did plenty of hard work after it stopped raining. Then I was out in Vancouver, funny place out there on the coast where I was. Worked up in the mountains in a copper mine. You either had to hike up the mountain or ride up in the buckets. They had this cable rigged up on big spindles top to bottom. So the full buckets pulled the empty ones back up the mountain. We used to ride up them buckets. Some places you'd go over canyons hundreds of feet deep and overhead were the mountains, all rock and snow against the sky, looking big as the whole world, as if any minute they'd come down on you. After those mountains, I didn't mind the quarries here too much. Well, I started there, and I ended up here.
Then I was a motorman on a streetcar in Boston. One time a fellow left a whole payroll for the Hood Rubber Company in my car. I tell you I did some tall thinking when I seen all that money. At the end of the run at Harvard Square, I told the conductor. We got off with the bag and we sat down on a bench. We did a lot of thinking there, by God. He said we ought to get out with the money. He was an honest man too, but it was just temptation. I felt the same way. Finally, I turned it in. Just as I did, they came after it. His face was white as a ghost. Funny part was, he didn't know my number, car number, even what time he'd got on the car. We could have got away with it easy. Well, he gave me $5 out of his pocket. He's just trying to earn a day's pay like us. After that, I came up here and I've been here ever since. Fellow told me about Barry Granite, steady jobs and good pay. I was sick of subways, I wanted to get out in the open again, so here I am. 21 years of my life in that quarry hole, nine more years and others just like it. Now I'm out of work and I don't know what to do. By the looks of the papers tonight, we'll be having war before long. They've been sharpening up their teeth a long time over there. They'll be at it pretty soon. They're still holding that blockade. Price of foods jumped over 50% already. Something's got to break, it sure has. I did about everything in the quarries, everything but run a channeling machine. Never did that. All the other jobs I know, but what good's that to me now? What I'd like, by God, is a little business of my own. You know, grocery store or something, maybe a gasoline station. Thought of pulling a grocery store on wheels, running it around from house to house. But I don't know. I only know I've got to do something. We're going to have a short summer this year. After the 4th of July, you have to begin thinking about winter in this country. I'm not worrying too much. I always got by all right. Probably I always will. But things are different now than they used to be. Once I could always go out and earn 40 $50 a week. Can't do that anymore, by Jesus. Not the way things are today. I don't care about making a lot of money. I just want to get by. We haven't any children. Sometimes we're lonesome. And then again, by God, I'm glad I didn't bring any into this world. I wouldn't have missed living my life with all the bad spots in it, but I had a better chance than kids do now. If you start across the continent today, you gotta ride the freight trains or bum the highway. You can't jump from job to job. That was Richard Gayote performing Jack's story. After performing Jack's story, Richard and I had a chance to talk about it in the studio. Richard studied environmental science and does painting and construction projects. His own grandfather worked in the stone industry, extracting marble in Danby, Vermont, a couple hours southwest of Barrie. There was a lot in Jack's story that he could relate to both in terms of his family's history and his own life. Our family came over from Italy to cut the stone. We was right, right before World War I, and our hometown was destroyed by an earthquake, and so everyone left, and some people went to Europe, and the rest of them came to the States, but they all that's what they knew how to do was stone, and they kind of, most of them made their way over to, to southern Vermont and cut marble as their specialty. They didn't have protections. It was they were using dynamite and they were using 
every it was just like the thing that he was talking about with the copper cars they would they would ride the thing up the mountain rather than have to walk and there was always if you didn't want to do one of the jobs they gave you even when my grandpa did it he told me stories about having to climb up on the cranes and didn't have any ropes or anything and if you wanted to do wanted your job the next day you just did whatever they said because there was always 20 guys waiting at the gate to, for day work they would take three or four or five guys until the rest come back tomorrow maybe we use you probably we won't but they're all just so hurting for work because it was that same time he worked on the civilian conservation corps as well he did a lot of jobs he told me about cutting pulp wood for four dollars a day they would bring down they would load a truck write it to the train yard unload it and that's by hand with a pulp hook no machinery that's just guys with a hook and four foot pulp logs They'd load a load, unload it. They'd go back up the mountain, get another load, unload it, and that was their day. So basically, a dollar a load, and that was good, good money. He said for that at those times, that was about as good as you could do. Grandpa Basso got crushed in there, lifting up a block, and it came off of an older version of a derrick, basically enough to get him up onto a the system that takes him down. There's a bucket system that the stone goes down, and that brings the old the empty cars back up. All that rubble is still there, all the remnants of it. It's amazing how far gone it is. It looks ancient, from not just from 70 years ago. It looks way older than that, but that's all the older it is. My dad and I are the first generations to not work in a quarry. I tried to get a job in Slate Quarry, but they didn't take me. They wanted somebody with more experience with equipment. That's pretty much all it is, is just driving equipment nowadays. There's still some, they they, run, they throw dynamite quite a bit. I was doing a paint job down in South Pulteney. It's all just surrounded by quarry land, and it's pretty active. And they were doing some blasting. That's exciting when you're up on a ladder on the side of a house, and they start touching dynamite off down the street without warning. <laughs> the thing that's got to have changed the most, and that this has happened throughout the whole history of it, is they're always improving. It took a lot more workers years ago to do what they can do with a lot fewer. It's it's all mechanized. and it, Technology has improved the safety, but it employs a lot fewer people. And it's usually specialists who aren't necessarily local, from the local community. They're, from, they're trained somewhere else, sometimes overseas even. Yeah. For sleet, it's, sleet, it's pretty different. There's more stuff. They do a lot more processing right on site in some of the quarries. They'll mill it into shingles right there because that's pretty much what it's all going to become. There's a big demand for that because um, out west, they're everything has to be fireproof building code now and slate's naturally fireproof all the new engineered stuff will catch on fire and the asphalt shingles and all that will catch on fire but slate is totally fireproof and now and then they redo stuff fancy places towns like Pulteney, Caston, Whitehall, Granville, New York they were um they were all bigger 100 years ago that's kind of everywhere in the whole the rust belt Vermont's not immune from that Vermont's very much part of the rust belt the way I see it we have a real industrial history. We had as much industry as anywhere 100 years ago. They were making some of the best stuff was still being made here in parts of Vermont. Burlington has done a good job kind of mitigating it and because they're a lot more uh, independent of the Vermont economy, I would say, but towns like Springfield, Barrie, Rutland, they just, you know, you can't you can't not notice it when you go through. So they have those issues. They're they're grappling with that. It's a blue-collar identity. And the people, I, I mean, there's, there's not enough work. It's musical chairs. And that's nothing new. That's what Grandpa said. That's what Jack was saying is that, you know, it was always hard. 
the stone is still there. In all these places, it's still there, and it's, it's going to be valuable again someday. It's just when when will we get at it, and who is going to benefit? Are the communities going to benefit? Because for the last 40, 50 years, it's the companies that own them, and they're independent of the local economy too for the most part. I'm content to be a working class, you know, like I I ha I went to college. I have education in ecology of all things, which doesn't apply very much to doing painting contracts, but I think it makes me better it makes me better at it. I'm more conscientious. I try and buy recycled paint and green paint whenever I can and push that to my clients, but I get I get what has the best result. The greenest thing is to use a material properly. I don't know. It takes it takes all kinds, you know, to need people of intelligence, even in the working class. It takes craftsmanship, a pride in job well done. To me, it really is more important than money. Money is just a means to an end. Just like he said, I don't need a lot of money. I just want to get by. I want to have some enjoyment. I don't want to just live to work. Not have to sacrifice something to get all the bills paid. It's not saying, okay, well, what are we going to, if we're going to do this and this, what are we not going to do? Just being able to just have all the needs met and and within a level of comfort you can i don't we don't have air conditioning we burn wood pretty pretty modest Richard is right. It takes all kinds. And the working class aren't just a bunch of dummies. They know how to make things, all kinds of things, and how to do it right. Throughout history, it has been the workers who have led the fight in making workplaces safer and more humane. In Vermont's granite and stone industry, Barry led the way. Even though Jack's story suggested that some workers were simply reckless, it was employers' unwillingness to bear additional costs that often stood in the way of improved safety. In Barry, unions pressured management for greater safety regulations. And they won. Perhaps Jack was part of that fight. In the marble quarries, like the ones in which Richard's grandfather worked, things were considerably worse for some time. The mayor of Barry told Roldis Richmond for the Federal Writers Project that this was for three reasons. One, the marble operations were more monopolized than they were in Barrie. Two, many of the granite employers in Barrie rose up through the ranks of labor and were therefore more sympathetic to workers. And three, unions were stronger in Barrie. 
The legacy of Vermont's marble monopoly lives on in the name of Redfield Proctor. The town of Proctor, Vermont, is named after him. Maybe it shouldn't be. Proctor consolidated the marble companies and reduced the lives of his workers to the barest of existences. Marble workers interviewed by F.C. Slayton for the Federal Writers Project in the 1930s stated that many men received weekly paychecks of two cents, 20 cents, or 68 cents. 68 cents equals less than $13 in today's dollars. Again, that's $13 a week in today's dollars. If they received the 68 cents paycheck and not the two cents paycheck. Imagine trying to meet all of your family's needs on less than $2 a day. If you can't, that's because living on less than $2 a day is considered to be living in extreme poverty. And because the marble workers lived in company towns, where everything from the houses to the church to the stores were owned by the company, their money didn't go very far. Slayton recorded that many were in debt for rent in company-owned houses and faced excessive deductions from their pay for electricity, water, insurance, hospitalization, and even for the tools they needed to do their jobs. Yes, the company made the workers buy their own tools. But despite these challenges, including the Great Depression, the workers of Vermont Marble Company finally decided they had had enough and went on strike in 1935. Through worker organization and changes in the economy, things eventually got better for both marble and granite workers. On the other hand, there are a lot less jobs in both industries. And a lot of workers are still injured or killed on the job. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, roughly 8,000 workers are injured on the job every day in America. Of these, 14 of them die. Keep in mind, these are conservative numbers because they are reported by employers, not employees. At the end of his story, Jack lamented that he could no longer just go out and earn $44 a week. In today's dollars, that would be about $913 a week, or $47,476 a year, what we would call a solid middle-class income. But he didn't just want a good-paying job again. If we are being honest with ourselves, most of us want more from our working lives than just money. Jack didn't look down into the empty quarries, but beyond them. He dreamed of another life. A life in which he owned a small grocery store or gasoline station. A life in which he worked for himself. A life in which he could decide. In 1941, the United States entered World War II. Workers drifted out of Barry's granite industry and into the more profitable war industries in Connecticut and Massachusetts, the granite industry being deemed non-essential to the war effort. 
automation continued to replace those workers who remained, and subsequent waves of trade liberalization made it easier for companies to outsource labor. Unfortunately, it took a world war to get the government to spend enough money to end the Depression. Well, Abe Devere was the dry goods cashier at his desk. He would sit all the day till his doctor advised him to start exercising or else he would soon fade away. One night this poor loony met Madeline Mooney. Fitzgibbons and shouted with joy. What do you think about class? Do you work in the granite or marble industry or have a family member that does? Do you have a dangerous job? Have you struggled with unemployment? Did you relate to Jack's story? Let's keep the conversation going. You can post your stories on our Facebook page, send us a tweet at Onmass Podcast, or email us at onmasspodcast at gmail.com. That's E-N-M-A-S-S-E podcast. Despite these hard times for the granite industry and the working class in general, there are some who have managed to hang on, even thrive. For the next episode, we will hear the story of someone working in the granite industry today. Remember in episode three, when we heard the story of Donegal, the stone carver, Remember how he mourned that all the artists in the granite business were dying off due to silicosis and worried that in the future there would be no more of them? In the next episode, we will hear from a man named Gampo. He is a granite carver and an artist. Thank you for listening. We have additional reading materials, archive footage, and show notes on our website. While there, you can give us feedback or suggestions for the next season. This is an independently produced show. I receive support from you, my listeners. If you like this show, go to onmasspodcast.com slash donate to show your support. Special thanks to Richard Gayote for this episode. The song, John Henry, at the beginning of our show is from the Alan Lomax Collection at the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress, used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. I'm Liz Medina. This is on mass, bringing you stories of struggle and hope from the working class. Oh,
I may not know. 